0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18
3: plus. This is Twist. This Week in Science, episode number 898. Recorded on Wednesday, October twenty sixth, two 2022. It's twis 2022. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kiki, and tonight on the show, we will fill your heads with Viruses Mond and Editing Living Humans <sighs> But first. Thanks to our amazing Patreon sponsors for their generous support of twists. You can become a part of the Patreon community at patreon.com slash this week in science.
1: Disclaimer Disclaimer Disclaimer. Everything counts. Every experiment, every drug trial, every data observation, every innovation, it all counts. Even if it doesn't seem like it at the time. Even if the hypothesis was a flop or the drug failed to cure. Even if the observation turned out to be noise or the innovation, just a modest improvement. Everything in science counts. Because that's how math works. Because the stories in science don't begin or end with a single paper researcher, institution, or discovery, science spans across time, across fields of research, all adding to what came before, to form a greater, ever-growing body of knowledge, where every new result leaves us with the same question, what comes next? And the answer to that question is always the same. More science, and more This Week in Science, coming up next. A kind of mind that can't get enough. I wanna learn everything. I wanna fill it all up with new discoveries that happen every day of the week. There's only one place to go to find the knowledge I seek. I wanna know. Good science to you, Kiki and Blair.
3: And a good science to you too, Justin, Blair, and Dr. Vivek Kumar, and everyone out there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Science. We are back again to talk all about the science that has occurred in the last week or so. We always understand that there's a lot more leading up to it, but... We have a great show ahead. I have uh, science news about Mond, Ooh. viruses, tentacle bots, and we have an interview to discuss biomedical engineering with Dr. Vivek Kumar. Justin, what did you bring for us?
1: I've got a, a new development by a scientist that may have farmers seeing red. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing like the six o'clock news <laughs> every time. Uh, gene editing, uh, in humans, the in live humans, not the ones that, uh, have, you know, not the next generation, but current, uh, live humans. Uh, what's going on with ancient Brits? A little discovery there. And if there's time, because we have guests and stuff, uh, a couple satellite stories, uh, that are very interesting on the global warming front.
3: Oh, and Blair, what is in the animal corner? I have
2: electric insects, uh, loud turtles, And chemical camouflage.
3: I'm excited about that animal quarter. Electric insects. What? Mm -hmm. Okay, we got to get into this. As we jump into the show, I am needing to remind you that if you have not yet subscribed to This Week in Science, you can find us all places that podcasts are found. Apple, Google, Spotify, all the other things. We broadcast live weekly, 8 p.m. Pacific time on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, we are Twist Science on Twitch, Instagram, and Twitter. And if this is just too much, twist.org is our website, and you can find all the things related to every episode right there. But let's jump into the science. So first thing off of my plate is I would love to tell you about Mond. What is Mond? Right? That's the that's the big question. What is Mond? Mond <laughs> modified is
1: modified something new. Newtonian something gravity. <laughs> modified Newtonian gravity. That doesn't add up the mind. What is this? Uh,
3: right. So, it is modified Newtonian dynamics and is a, an alternative to our theories of how the universe works, how gravity works, how everything fits together and it's contested as to how accurate it is, how much it works. However, some researchers just publishing in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society have determined that their observations of star clusters are consistent with Mond rather than Newton's regular old, plain old laws of gravity. So the idea being that when star clusters are formed, There's a lot of energy and these clusters, they they cluster, they cluster up, but then stars escape and they want to go in different directions. And according to Newton's traditional laws of gravity, there's a couple of ways they could go and they should be evenly balanced. Like if you imagine that there's two doors that these stars in a room could exit, those doors are the same size, everybody's going to exit at even probabilities, But that's not what they observed. They observed that there's like a tail and there's an odd clustering in these star star clusters that can only be explained by the Mond hypothesis. So, of course, astrophysicists and physicists are all aflutter in the community going, Aren't they always? Aren't they always? Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, there look. There's a lot more that needs to be worked out, but these researchers, uh, they use the European Space Agency's Gaia space mission to be able to uh, analyze to get the data to analyze the data. They have looked at five open clusters and uh, five that are near us, and four specifically uh, by this particular group, and yeah, so the. Question is, is it really a different hypo is it different gravitational physics? Is there a modification based on different parts of space or time or different areas? Does physics
1: change? so, so it's I always find interesting this and it's an old story. Like we have like I can go all the way back to the ancient Greeks or whatever civilization you'd like to choose. Uh, who started assigning deities to the movers of things? They had a god of the north wind, the south wind. Yeah, the gods that looked over sheep. One thing that was missing was a god of gravity. It was such a given, you know. You you assign powers that move to things that change, but gravity is so consistent. People just sort of overlooked it. Up is up, down is down. That's just how it works, right? Uh, and so as we got, we've gone forward, and we've been able to understand and you know we have newtonian physics that explains uh how gravity will act and predictively we still don't know the mechanism of gravity it is still right. one of those great mysteries and so yeah with uh, as we're modifying we're still just modifying our, our 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 understanding of gravity through the observation of it taking place of apples dropping or star clusters but we, which will eventually lead us to the mechanism behind gravity, but right. we still don't have it, which is, I think, so fascinating that it, is, it was a, an oblivious thing to us in the beginning, and we're still trying to catch up to exactly what's happening with gravity.
3: Dr. Kumar, you look like you had something to say.
0: <laughs> so so I am a YouTube and Netflix astrophysicist. Um, I, I, all my knowledge <laughs> comes from YouTube on this. Right. I think my understanding is uh, gravitational waves and gravitons or gravitational particles or whatever quantization is so hard to detect because gravity works at such long distances and is such right. a weak force that it's almost impossible to uh, measure in, in, in most, in most ways. But, but coming back to Mons, uh, as soon as you started talking about it, it reminded me of dark matter, right? This idea that everything's expanding or collapsing and there's gotta be this other force. And, um, I, I, I don't know, does this have much to do with dark matter? Is this a component of dark matter? Um, I don't know. I
3: we don't it. know. No. yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of, you know, Like Justin's getting at, there are definitely a lot of things we have yet to learn about this wonderful universe that we live in.
1: Yeah, how does gravity work? So we have all these placeholders for it. We have all these. We understand, uh, you know, Newtonian physics. Dark matter, if there's this thing out there, this could explain a lot. But uh, but then the the lack of detection, and then every once in a while we make an observation that goes, oh wait, that galaxy isn't. This behaving according to what the dark matter model was now. Yeah. Now this is, we got a mon thing where the clusters that's not behaving how the other... It, yeah. keeps, it keeps showing us that we have missing uh, a missing component or missing factor there. That, that yeah. Missing. And
3: what, one of the things that the researchers do point out is that they had to use relatively simple computational method methods, and that's, quote... And they currently lack the mathematical tools to do more detailed analyses of modified Newtonian dynamics. So there's actually more math that needs to be
1: That is an insane created. That is,
3: <laughs>
2: Yeah, they that haven't is so... invented the math they need to make their model work yet.
1: <laughs> that is such an, I mean, it's an honest assessment, but I, I, really at this point, that's a yeah. really, that's a big statement. We don't have yeah. the maths that can do this yet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So
3: that that big take home message I think is uh you know yeah, it's stuff to ponder for sure. It's kind of
2: like <laughs> something's up. We're not 100% sure what it is. Can't we feel even like measure. it's probably not what other people think. Yeah, TBD.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Justin, do you want to tell us a story about yeah, something yeah, here so on this earth is, uh... possibly?
1: This is a very planetary-focused story. Yeah. Uh, so the world right now, as we are somewhat aware, is facing the dual threats of global warming and the effect of agricultural sustainability in that changing climate. So there's this ever-growing population here on planet Earth that requires more production from agriculture. So there's some pressure to find solutions that will allow people to continue. And that's it, just to continue. Just, just allowing us to continue. Right. New research out of Hokkaido University might have farmers seeing red in the future while putting them in the black financially. That was my newscastery best attempt there. Well and, and, mm-hmm. and allowing, of course, people to continue. Plants like sunlight; they like it a lot. Photosynthesis: this process where plants uh, convert sunlight to ATP energy-carrying molecule found in the cells of all living things, but plants don't use all of the light coming from the sun. Mostly they observe the visible light in red and blue regions, red being mostly, I think, more utilized than the blue, although I think the blue was used maybe early. Sunlight conveniently includes both of these red and blue lights, Uh, but it also sends a lot of high energy ultraviolet light in the high energy wavelength region that the plant's don't use, don't need, and it can actually be pretty harmful to the plants. So depending on the specific range of the UV light, it can actually even alter the DNA of a plant. Plants without UV light, indoor grown plants with the red and blue light grow just fine. In fact, shading plants from solar UV is one of the key strategies used to uh, suppress growth inhibition and damage to plants, which is why greenhouse materials often have UV-blocking properties. Enter Hokkaido University, who has now tested a wavelength-converting material to modify UV light coming from the sun into red light. Working with the Institute for (laughs) Chemical Reaction Design Discovery, they developed a uh, europium-based thin-film coating, which is an element that is actually pretty unusable for most things i think it's pretty unstable somehow they've they've managed to incorporate it into a thin film coating they test this out on japanese larch trees that were cultured under wavelength converting material films and sunlight three months in the the seedlings were taller than those without the films at the end of the cultivation experiment The diameter of the stem at soil surface was 1.2 fold larger and the total biomass of the seedlings was 1.4 fold greater with significant uh, increments of increased thickness of the roots, branches, stems, and leaves. So these sort of numbers are great for Japanese larch tree nurseries. But if this translates into agriculture, other starting plants, into biofuel crops, uh could be a real game changer it's you know any anything that increases yield and productivity in that sector uh has in in a huge effect on the outcome of 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 food that reaches a table allowing thus humans to better continue
3: yeah that's really that's interesting Just okay, we're just going to take the most productive part of sunlight and give that to plants. But it seems as though this is the kind of thing that you know it's not going to work in the big industrial scale farming where it's outdoors. Um, You know, possibly this is going to be the kind of thing that's going to work in indoor vertical farms or in greenhouses or you know, places where it's much easier to control. That situation. I just I'm having a hard time having grown up in the Central Valley of California where there's lots of fields. It's right. a, I'm having a hard time imagining all the fields covered
2: in a material.
3: Well, right. So <laughs> the
2: other thing about covering a field in material, though, is you reduce um, atmospheric water loss right from evaporation and Ooh. i think the thing that i every time i drive through the central valley and i get so frustrated i like want to shout at every farm is that they're just spewing water all over their plants <laughs> so much of it is getting left into the atmosphere and um you know drip irrigation is way more um uh water conscious i guess but anyway point being there's a there's a secondary benefit to covering plants which is you get to retain more moisture too
1: and a couple things there too <laughs> Also, having been in the Central Valley, I have seen <laughs> these these small uh, coverings uh, yeah. that go down rows because the seedlings are particularly vulnerable to direct sunlight. So, right. or the small plants uh, when they're when they're just getting started. So they. Yeah, it
2: looks see- like trash bags are covering each row of strawberry. Yes, yeah. absolutely.
1: Uh, also, though, this this uh, research was done in Hokkaido, which is in northern Japan, which does is is often covered in snow for much of the year. Right. So this mm-hmm. is also coming from uh, what you would consider a colder, sort of northern climate. It's also an island, so there's probably plenty of marine layer going on there too. So there's uh, this is also an option for maybe places that are having agriculture where it doesn't, where they can't grow it outdoors all year round. And so yeah, less are productive areas. Yeah. The but the thing I thought about specifically, they were doing this on trees. We are going to as climates change have to migrate a lot of trees they're not going to be able to do it on their own forests are going to need to move to to keep their their habitat their their the range of temperatures that they're used to living in and so massive efforts to reforest some portions of forest and move them further north or, mm-hmm. or south as the case may be uh this would be a really good way to get robust seedlings faster out into the field.
2: Well, and you bring up another point too, which is if you, again, if you think about the Central Valley and climate change and the fact that it's getting hotter and uh, that can be a stressor on plants, covering them can also be helpful for that. So whereas covering massive farms sounds like a large undertaking, might actually be required to keep certain farms going in the next 20, 30,
1: 40 years. And this is also (laughs) a weird side thing. Like They're converting it to red light so that the plants can use that the uh, the the ultraviolet, which is just brilliant, but that ultraviolet is also something that often is creating heat, so if you're reducing heat in a greenhouse, you're also running fans less you're you're doing less cooling you're you know might be using less electricity in these in these which on a large scale farm can be a, a quite a big electricity bill. Uh, to be, yeah. to be keeping those, the big, those...
3: the big, big question though is yeah, what can we do as we move forward to really maximize our mm-hmm. our land and our food productivity for a growing population, because that's gonna be an issue. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
0: okay, I just, just want to jump in real quick. So that first uh, graph that you showed with the wavelengths from the sun. Um, yes. So the sun is most green. So you know how. with thinking About what color is the sun, and one of the things Yellow. I learned recently is uh, it's uh, uh, this off the white the sun shines all the colors of the spectrum, as well as infrared and ultraviolet, and a whole bunch of other wavelengths. But it shines the most in the green wavelengths,
3: mm. That's yeah. very but the cool. plants don't use that the most, which is the interesting part. It's like,
0: oh, well, the, the, then of course, you have like it, atmospheric but, yeah. attenuation and a lot of different factors, but. In terms of like the the spectrum that the sun Mm. shines, it's highest in the green, which is what that uh, first graph showed.
2: Yeah. Man, next thing you're going to tell me, they're not wearing, the sun doesn't wear sunglasses either. No. (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) No. Let's go at night.
3: (laughs) Blair, tell me about these electric insects, please. Okay. Well, I'm going to start by saying researchers
2: don't have a whole lot of information on this topic yet. It's just kind of weird. So, um, researchers discovered that insects can produce as much atmospheric electric charge as a thunderstorm cloud. What? This type of electricity helps shape weather events, aid insects in finding food, and helps to lift spiders up in the air to migrate over large distances.
3: Yes, we've talked about the uh, electrostatic... Ballooning that spiders do, yes, it's so cool, yeah.
2: But when you go to quantify that electric charge, that is what's really weird about this story. So most living creatures have an electric charge. Thump, 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 thump. Right. Um, having they researchers have previously found that honeybee honeybee hive swarms charge the atmospheric electricity by a hundred to a thousand volts per meter, so that increases the electric field force that is normally experienced at ground level. So this research team developed a model that can predict the influence of other species of insects. And it all depends on the density and size of the insect swarm. So locusts, for example, have these huge swarms sizing about 460 square miles with 80 million locusts in less than a square mile. (laughs) So their influence is way larger than honeybees. They haven't quantified it yet, but it's huge. And so um, they think that there are unsuspected links that exist over different spatial scales, ranging from microbes in the soil and plant-pollinator interactions to insect swarms, and indeed, in these locust cases, perhaps even the global electric circuit. So this is a good opportunity to remind us that different realms of science need to talk to each other. So uh, electric charge is something that's studied in physics normally, but this is a time when physics and biology need to talk to each other to figure out the impact of this. The first thing I thought of, of course, is if insects are impacting the global electric charge scale, and we're going through what some have called an insect apocalypse. I won't say that because that's scary, but you know, some have called it that. But um, wait,
1: you just did.
2: <laughs> now I'm liking <laughs> it. Ooh, now it's twistoween. It. It's scary insect apocalypse. <laughs> what will that do to our planet and the electric charge on our planet? It's, I don't know. It's pre- on one side of things very obvious. Everything with a heartbeat has an electric charge. But then there is that whole conversation about, yeah, there's a swarm of insects. They all carry their own electric charge. Is that compounding and doing something to the area around itself? I don't know. Pretty trippy.
1: Oh gosh, and is it going to you- turn out? Is it going to turn out that this whole time, the uh, the our our electromagnetic shell that protects us from. From cosmic rays, the, oh right, the, the, produced the, by the insects. It's produced by the insects. maintained by that balance. That delicate balance is maintained by the insect population. Yeah. Without them, the the poles will start flipping, and the radiation will start bombarding us. And oh you gosh,
3: I don't think it's that big of
2: an influence. Okay. But okay. Yeah, no, okay. I, I don't think okay. it's that big. But it could it could be you know statistically significant.
3: Is all this is really saying? Yeah. So the question is, is the electric potential that's changing the gradient, the charges that they're building up that's changing the gradient, is that a a factor of the fact that they are flying insects with these little wings that are moving air molecules around Mm -hmm. and creating static electricity and building up charge in that sense? Or is it just a factor of they are there, right? Because, you know? like you said, we all have you know electrical potentials going through us. I mean, even plants carry electrical yeah. potentials through them. So it's very yeah. I'm on the. It's probably the the wings and the air movement mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a factor of if you get these big swar- big swarms together that are have are actually impacting the air itself. Then maybe that's what's going on.
2: You're talking about quite literally.
3: The butterfly effect. That's what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except for the fact that in the study, they did say that uh, Lepidoptera do not actually have a right. big big effect on the
2: Sure, sure, if you want to spoil my fun. <laughs> that's what I do
3: here. Yeah. With, with facts. I guess that's the point
2: of this show. Anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: But insects impacting our atmosphere that's wild yeah yeah who knew we need to start yeah we need to start delving into these things a bit more so right about now i want to let you all know that this is this week in science thank you so much for joining us for this episode and if you are enjoying the show please let others know about this week in science we'd appreciate your help in spreading the word Coming back in right now, I do want to introduce our guest tonight. Our guest on the show is Dr. Vivek Kumar. He's an associate professor in biomedical engineering at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, he began his own faculty position the Kumar Lab, with expertise in the areas of tissue engineering, drug development and delivery, and specific research interests in the area of inflammation modulation and angiogenesis, especially in understanding the role of small growth factor or cytokine mimic's ability to signal biological processes. And I think we've actually talked about some of Dr. Kumar's work related to tooth pulp on the show previously. But welcome to the show, Dr. Kumar. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's 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 a pleasure. Happy to chat about you know whatever uh, you'd like.
3: Perfect. That just opens the doors to so many <laughs> things. I don't know if you should have said that. Okay. <laughs> just to start off, so biomedical engineering is the you know the the code word for what you do scientifically. How did you get into this area of science?
0: Um I, I think I think a lot of folks uh who end up in biomedical engineering at some point have flirted with medicine uh, as did I in in my undergraduate years. Um, but during my undergraduate career I started working in a research lab as do a lot of pre-med kids mm. and I realized that the impact I wanted to create was not in seeing sick people and treating them every day um or or trying to you know improve the healthcare system in that sense. But more so, develop therapeutics, develop devices, drugs, uh, materials, and engineer uh, better cures. In that way, impacting millions of people potentially.
1: Um, also, not have then not having to work with sick people, all day. sick people
0: every day, every day. Yeah. right? Yeah, no, that was stop, stop. that was a big part of it. No, so, so a big part of becoming a doctor is wanting to see sick people every day, and that wasn't yeah. something that I generally like to do. So.
1: I, I I met a I met a, a doctor who who told me exactly uh, this regret of it. <laughs> the only regret in his life is that you know going in, it I, I, it it hadn't occurred to him that this was going to be yeah. his his every day. <laughs> and so so I so to be
0: fair, uh, now as a professor, I sit on the other side of this, and I advise a lot of pre health students at NGIT where we have a fantastic record of getting uh, students in, into medical school, right. and. Uh, uh, You know, I I think there are a lot of careers that physicians can do nowadays that are outside of medicine, like consulting, public health, uh, enhancing or promoting, um, you know, even voting in hospitals. Like I saw this guy, Alistair Martin, who uh, has set up these voting booths in hospitals, uh, in ERs, right? He's an ER physician who's trying to encourage voting in ERs, registering people who come to ERs.
3: That's fantastic, you know, having multiple layers of impacts. Yeah. Well,
2: you're That's sitting okay. here in the waiting room for the next four hours. Why don't you fill out some voter registration?
0: In fact, wow. and, and, and arguably, these are, some of these folks are the people who suffer the most, right, who are right. least represented in, 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 in our electorate. And, you know, voting is not the number one priority on their minds. It's no. getting treatment or figuring out how to pay this bill. So, But smart. their
3: votes can have those impacts that are needed.
0: Right. To drive that change.
3: Yeah. Okay. So tooth pulp. Where did how did you go from, okay, I'm gonna help people? You you you're like, okay, I'm not gonna be a doctor. I'm gonna come right, up right, with right. cures and so what's going
0: um, on there? So I started my graduate work at Georgia Tech and at Emory uh looking at synthetic blood vessels, so creating small blood vessels. Uh and after you finish your PhD, you do more research because you just love doing that for forever. So I did what's known as a postdoc for four years with uh, a guy at Rice University, Jeffrey Hartgrank, where we looked at creating small blood vessels. Uh, During that time, I worked with uh, Rina D'Souza. So you guys know Anthony Fauci, right? The NIAID infectious disease guy. So the dental version of that, the head of NIDCR, National Institute of Dental Craniofacial Research, is Rina D'Souza. I trained under her uh, while I was at Rice. um, And... One of the things that we started to look at was using our gels, you know, the stuff that looks like Purell, right? Hydrogels, using our gels to inject into the tooth after you get a root canal. So, right now, when you get a root canal, um, or rather, when you have an infection in the soft tissue, it hurts a whole bunch. They go in, they take out all the infected stuff, and they put in little rubber rods and they put cement on top, Portland cement, literally. And you're left with a relatively inert, non-responsive tooth. So if you get infection again, you might lose the whole tooth. You might need to put an artificial tooth. So what we said was, what if you can inject a hydrogel, right? A gel that can help blood vessels grow and new tissue grow. Um, so yeah. So essentially what we do in my research lab is engineer hydrogels that help regenerate blood vessels, that regenerate a variety of different tissues. Uh, not just blood vessels, but yeah, we've expanded beyond that. Um, but yeah. So,
3: so we know, happening. we know gels like Purell, like, okay, yes. Purell's like got yeah. a lot of alcohol in it. It's, it's a little gooey gel It dries out and, you know, maybe somebody's put aloe in it or something to right. keep right, your right. skin from drying out. But um, can you explain how a hydrogel works in this manner? Um, you know, what? Right. It, how is, how is this jelly substance doing so, all this supportive work?
0: So there's a lot of different types of gels, and yeah. your Purell gels are, um, there's a large, a large percentage of a Purell gel is alcohol. And the idea is that the alcohol stays on your skin, and it kills the bacteria if you leave it on there for a certain amount of time, what have you. Um, now, what we work with are hydrogels, and as its name uh, suggests, it's 95 to 99 to 99.5% water, hydro water, right? The rest of the material, so like 0.5% to 5%, like a very small amount of it, is stuff. Now you can make hydrogels out of synthetic polymers, you can make them out of a variety of different things, but we make them out of peptides. So proteins, short proteins are peptides, right? So our peptides, they self-assemble. They come together on their own, they form little fibers and these fibers entangle and they hydrate, they suck up a whole bunch of water So these fibers hydrate into a hydrogel. And what's neat about these fibers is that you can syringe aspirate them and inject them, and they form a gel where you put them. So you can pull it up into a syringe, inject it into the tooth, and it forms a gel in your tooth. They biodegrade over about two to four weeks as native tissue grows into it. Um, And we've used this in the tooth, in the eye, in the brain. Um, and to be fair, we we haven't tested this in humans as yet. We've okay. done mainly rodent, so rat, m- mouse work, uh, some canine work as well.
3: And so I, I read that the the canine root canals with your hydrogel has been really successful.
0: Has right, that... right, right. So so basically, um, before you take a therapeutic or a drug or a technology to market. You have to do human clinical trials. Before human trials, you do animal trials. Before animal trials, you do bench trials. Uh, And basically you're de-risking it. You're trying to ensure there is no chance of uh, any adverse effect in humans. So typically before humans, you do a large animal model and that could be in non-human primates, canines, uh, pigs, depending on what is most relevant and mimics the human condition. Um, so in this case, it was a canine model. So we did root canals uh, in in dogs, uh, adult beagles, uh, and injected our hydrogels and then looked at the teeth a month later. And what we saw was very nice tissue regeneration uh, into the canal space, into the tooth space.
2: We have a question in the chat. Um, does the enamel regrow or do you have to seal over the tooth?
0: So we do have to seal. So we don't aim to regenerate enamel. There are a couple of folks who look at the outside of the tooth, at the enamel portion. Uh, We're more interested in regenerating the soft tissue, the dental pulp. Um, There's a company called Curodont, C-U-R-O-D-O-N-T, Curodont. They do some enamelogenesis. They've got a product similar to what we've got, but enamels the outside, the white porcelainy part of the tooth. Uh, the soft stuff inside that supplies nutrients and nourishes the outside, that's the pulp. And we try to regenerate the pulp.
1: So there's always something somebody's getting very long in the tooth. And that means they're, they're older and they're wiser. And it's usually because they have gum disease is basically so, what it is. Is this, can this be eventually applied to reversing some of the effects of gum disease then? So we've been interested in
0: exploring this material for a number of applications. So we didn't start out looking uh, primarily at, at dental pulp. We started out looking at vascular disease. Um, I worked for a vascular surgeon. I know a lot about vascular, vasculopathies or diseases in the blood, in blood vessels and what have you. Um, and we started out looking at peripheral vascular disease or poor circulation in the legs. Mm. Uh, so right now we have grants and funding to look at this material for poor circulation in the legs, in the heart, after traumatic brain injury, like knocks on the head, injecting this into the cranium to preserve some of the function. Um, yeah. Interestingly, into the eye to treat one of the leading causes of blindness, wet age-related macular degeneration, wet AMD. It's like yeah. the back of the eye just has a bunch of blood vessels grow but they're like really leaky. So when we injected our angiogenic hydrogel, it stabilized those vessels, which is not your typical treatment. Typically, people go for monthly injections where they kill the blood vessels. Anyway, different topic.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. So yeah, the, the, the applications then uh, are everywhere within the human body.
0: We're, we're very excited. So, so far with the largest animal model we've tried is canines in the dental pulp uh but we're very excited about moving this to other animal uh to other disease models and and you know whatever we can take into the clinic and expanding the platform.
3: Um so you mentioned that you know there's a lot of stuff in the hydrogels. So um how does it work to support the soft tissue growth? Yeah. What kind of stuff is in there? Do you have growth factors that have been isolated from right, human right, right molecular systems? Right, right, right. Like, what are, you, what are you using? And is, so, does it depend on where, where in the body you're applying right. the hydrogel?
0: So, so uh, I, I like simplicity, right? And I, <laughs> like, uh, I also like not reinventing the wheel because I think, uh, you know, the millions, hundreds of millions of years of evolution that life has d- taken and done has done a very good job. So, what we do in our lab is that we mimic growth factors. So there's this very large growth factor called vascular endothelial growth factor. And through computational modeling, we can see how this large growth factor interacts with its receptor, right? So cells have receptors, growth factor binds to that receptor. Now, what we can do is isolate the very specific region that interacts with the receptor, the epitope. We can take that region and then attach it to our peptides. So now our proteins had that signaling domain on every single peptide. When these self-assemble into fibers, we have very high presentation of that domain. Long story short, we make synthetic growth factors that are very small, that are injectable and stay local um, because they're a part of the material. Other than that, it's water.
1: They're more (laughs) concise.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And uh, And we try our best not to deliver other growth factors or cells or any other uh, factors um, because we try to incorporate the signal within the material itself, Does that make sense.
3: Yeah, that does make sense. But it's just a signal that's telling the body, hey, exactly. start doing what you haven't been doing.
0: So the second part of this is that these are peptide-based, right? These are protein-based materials. So the the cells in the body rapidly infiltrate these gels they phagocytose, they gobble them up, they degrade them, and they say, well, this looks relatively normal. Let me start depositing collagen, right? So we see a lot of cells infiltrating. They deposit native collagen. We see blood vessels infiltrating. And in the tooth, for example, the cells that infiltrate differentiate towards dental pulp-like cells, right? So the niche that's in the... So depending on where we put these materials, the niche that's surrounding it influences the infiltrating stem cells and what have you
1: so Um, the tissues themselves take over
0: uh, right so
1: with the local with the local customs of what we grow here this is hey if if you're going to show up here we can set up your shop but it's got to be uh you know we're providing the
0: scaffolding and we're providing the the most in my opinion the most important facet of regeneration which is blood supply right? You can take organs, you can take, you can have all these fancy tissue engineering, all these different crazy ideas. But if you don't have blood supply, that thing's going to die, right? If you don't have a blood vessel, 200 microns from another blood vessel, tissue will die. 200 microns is 0.2 millimeters, right? Like an an extremely small amount, right? Like four hairs next to each other. If you don't have two blood vessels that far apart, that tissue will die. Organs will fail, Uh, you know, that that just bad news. So our biggest goal is to re is to engineer microvasculature using injectable gels.
3: In the chat room, JG is asking, can this be used to regrow nerves?
0: So we have um, so in a rodent model, uh, in a rat model, we did a craniotomy hole in the head and used a fluid jet to create an injury on the cranium, on the brain itself. We then injected the hydrogel onto the brain itself and then closed the uh, craniotomy and then looked at the animals a week later. In that study, we showed that we generated new blood vessels. We could help preserve some of the neurons. We have made a version of this peptide, uh, of this scaffold that is neurogenic, that helps proliferate neurons. Um, We haven't shown that in animals just as yet. So I wouldn't go as far as to say we can regenerate neurons, which is a huge, big deal. Yeah. You know. let's, so, let's not go that far. But we can regenerate uh, blood vessels, which is a big part of healing any tissue.
1: But I want to yeah. go that far because this sounds like the thing that can finally make me smarter.
0: <laughs> so
1: <laughs> I feel like I need more neurons than I'm working with. Is there, is there a future where, you know, like athletes, they got got all that stuff they can take to to build the muscles to the detriment maybe of some other physical health issues. I'd be willing to take on some detrimental uh, side issues. Oh, really? Oh, really? get smarter.
0: (laughs) I I think, I mean, so recently I heard a podcast about how important sleep is. And I'm not one to believe in sleep. But uh, interestingly... Almost every cell in your body has some sort of internal clock that responds to light, has some photoreceptor, right? Obviously, your eyes have rhodopsins or what have you, but different cells respond differently to light, be it daylight, artificial light or what have you. So in that sense, you know, there might be better times for digestion, better times for sleep, better times for learning, uh, which might be dependent on how much you sleep. So. I don't know. I got to learn and, more about sleep.
2: Yeah, so of Justin, course the
3: professor doesn't think that people need that much sleep, right? <laughs> I know. No, sleep is important, but you know these these wonderful hydrogels are potentially <laughs> going to help solve all sorts of issues. So, um, big question: It is around Halloween. Have you ever given any thought to you know the kind of instead of just fixing people? Maybe the upgrading of people. Like, could you develop vampire fangs, for instance, <laughs> through biomedical so, engineering? Uh,
0: so, so I'll give you a piece of uh, trivia. Um, so, so rats' incisors, rats' teeth, a, a number of the rats' teeth, they will grow forever. So even if you knock them out, pull them out, damage them, they'll grow forever. Evolutionarily, rats need their teeth, right? So they regenerate very well. So not the best model when you're trying to evaluate if your materials work, right? Because they regenerate on their own. Um, the other thing I was thinking about today is, you know, to be a mad scientist, you got to be a really good scientist. And then you have to become crazy, <laughs> right? Because if you want to reanimate a Frankenstein or something like that, you need to be extremely good at science and then want to do crazy stuff. So to, but to answer your question, I, so I do This is know, just
1: your step one. Well, I mean, this is it's a long process then. It's a long process. It's just, I'm um, on you, on, you, on your one. journey now.
0: So be so a scientist. I, yeah. I, I think, you know, the the field is moving so rapidly in so many different directions. My contribution to it, I think, is we will give you materials that will help you vascularize, that will help provide a blood supply, a nutrient exchange, oxygen supply to what you're doing. Be that yeah. transplanted organs, be that uh, uh bone implants be that um you know heart disease right we we have an ongoing yeah. trial where we're doing heart attacks in mice injecting these hydrogels into the heart directly and seeing whether we can regenerate blood vessels and therefore improve uh, cardiac outcomes or cardiac output um,
2: so to answer your question, Kiki, I decided to look at how vampire bat teeth are are um, different from our vampire teeth to bat. see if we could actually engineer this right now. <laughs> Good direction. So the, the upper incisor canines of vampire bats are large, flat, blade-like, and razor sharp. They do not have enamel, which allows for them to stay especially sharp and not wear down from use. A lot of people think that vampire bats have uh have like holes in their teeth and drink through their teeth, but they just bite to make cuts and then lap up blood with their tongues. <laughs> but so could we could we make some enamelless teeth that are
0: extra sharp? Um I I, I, I don't see why not. And I, I There you go. I, yeah, I, I, I yeah, wow.
3: I think that the, the uh, interesting you know point here that you've brought up is the angiogenesis, right? So how can we support the angiogenesis that's necessary for so many things and in terms of you know creating organs for you know or organ donation, right where we ha- we yeah, don't have a yeah. good organ donation supply. We want to create organs potentially, and angiogenesis has been a huge part of this. Where are we in? Our ability to get those really important small vessels where they need to be in a large organ, like have we so have so, we made that progress?
0: So um, we do a little bit of work in this, but if you think about a complex three-dimensional organ, you need to 3D print. And let's be honest, you need to have some kind of sophisticated uh, 3D architecture making program, and 3D printing kind of answers that. Now, the problem with 3D printing is that your resolution for your nozzle is needle-based, right? So you look, And also Taylor Coet Cone, but let's not go there, uh, is needle-based. And, let's, and that's on the order of about maybe 50 microns at best, right? If the best capillary or tube you can make is 50 microns, that's still not good enough to make a blood vessel, which uh, a capillary, which is on the order of 10 microns, 5 to 10 microns in diameter right? So you can't really 3D print every size of vessel architecture. That being said, even if you were able to 3D print or make it through some other fabrication scheme, sacrificial molding, XYZ, in my opinion, the biggest concern is not so much making something that looks cool and publishing a nice paper, but ensuring that once you implant it, first of all, you don't have rejection. And no, first of all, that you don't have clotting, right? Almost every surf collagen is highly thrombotic. The minute hmm. you blood touches collagen, which is like the basis for every tissue or organ in the body, as soon as blood touches collagen, it clots. It's just how it works. If blood touches hmm. endothelial cells, it doesn't clot. The collagen immediately clots, right? So there's so many challenges just with transplant, let alone blood vessels, let alone perfusion um, that, that I think uh, we must first face face um yeah
1: and it, where but we have
0: angiogenesis covered,
1: covered. what's what's the <laughs> how long does this take to to start to grow because one of the things that like where where is like a an immediate concern for where you would need to add vasculature and I, sure. the first thing I so, thought of was uh, like, uh, if somebody's got gangrene or...
0: If, uh, that's exactly the example I wanted to give you, right? Okay. So let's imagine I've got a, a di- an ulcerative wound here, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if I've got diabetes, which let's be honest, I'm halfway there. If I've got diabetes, then I have vasculopathies and neuropathies, meaning I don't feel that I have an injury here and my blood vessels don't supply it very well. So this region is not healing very well. Which means if I get an infection, it might spread to the bone, gangrene, amputation, all that stuff. But before we get there, to heal this wound, what I can do is remove all the dead scar tissue, debride it, right? Infection, debride it, fill it with a gel. Now, you could fill it, you could create a blood clot, and that's a fibrin gel, right? Your body has fibrinogen circulating in your system. And when you have a cut, that fibrinogen gets polymerized into fibrin, and that's your scab. It's a white polymer, but it contains red blood cells, which is why your scab looks reddish brown, right? Because it has trapped red blood cells in a white scab. Um, that scab degrades over about four to seven days and is somewhat water soluble, right? So you shower, you can kind of right. wear it off, Seven it. Or... Send it. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Ours degrades in three to four weeks. So if I, the way I like to tell people, uh, the way I like to explain our scaffolds is like, I wouldn't call it a synthetic fibrin, but it degrades similar to fibrin over a three to four week period. So you provide slightly longer for the tissue to grow. So coming back to that wound example, if you had just a blood clot within seven days, you might not have good good healing, especially if you're diabetic, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you have a hydrogel that, that persists, that sticks around for three to four weeks, that allows good tissue infiltration and angiogenesis, then you might have better outcomes. Um, that being said, we just published a study where we showed that these hydrogels can accelerate angiogenesis in diabetic wound healing in rats earlier this year.
2: So, okay. So this is all Thank really you. exciting and there's a, bu- a bunch of potential medical applications. And so how far away are we from me going to the hospital for something and going, give me that hydrogel?
0: <laughs> how many hours do we have to talk about this? So... Yeah. <laughs> so um, so I so so the benefit when I started my academic job, I um, wearing my academic hat. Uh, I ha- I had uh, this vision and this hope of bringing these products or these technologies I make to humans. Um, five years, six years in, I have tenure now. I have multiple startups, and I'm realizing that this is a huge pain because uh, there are so many factors that influence translation. It, just because people are excited, just because there is, the, there is a good appetite, there is a good market and what have you, you need so many other things to line up. For example, to bring a drug, because we activate receptors, we're classified as a drug, to bring a drug to market, the average drug, you need to do phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. Mm-hmm. You're looking right. at at least $100 million. Most startups don't have that. And to raise that from VC is hard, yeah. uh, unless you have a lot of track record. So you need to collaborate with, you need to do a strategic partnership with pharma. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that has to happen in phase one clinical trials because pharma doesn't want to invest in everyone at the idea stage, right? So you can't just go in with everyone who has animal data. So between where I am now, which is large animal efficacy and phase one human trials, where I can get pharma interested is about $2 million in mm-hmm. what we call the valley of death. Yes. right. The valley of death for biotech startups is your typical... Toxicity, manufacturing studies, the studies which don't create much value in terms of investors, but every d- drug has to do before you go to human trials. Wow. Before yeah. you go to human trials, you have to do tox and manufacturing, which the FDA requires, but costs a whole bunch of money, mm-hmm. right? So, and what who wants do... to
3: invest in that over, and if you don't know if it's actually like that. The exactly so risky it's in terms of investment, part.
1: yeah, i want yeah. I want so. to invest in. It. I don't have any money. No.
0: So, <laughs> so we have
1: a lot of people who email me and
0: say, "Hey, when can I get this in the clinic, right? like uh, yeah. when can i when yeah. can I do this? And yeah. you know sometimes like we've published uh, papers on neurogenic hydrogels or even uh, hydrogels that decrease injury from after traumatic brain injury. And there are folks who have had traumatic brain injury who reach out and say, "Hey, you know, is this available? Can mm-hmm. I go to the hospital and get it? And it's, it's you know, it's almost heartbreaking to say, look, yeah. we have a lot of development to do, but we're very excited about this, you know, stay in touch and, yeah.
1: Yeah, for the price of a house in uh, California or a town in Florida, <laughs> right. it, it seems like you <laughs> would, you know, if for all of the impact that it could potentially have to have so many people in so many so, different areas, you would think that this would be, this would be an enticing investment uh, for an investor or for federal funding. To mm-hmm. to so
0: some... that's, our, that's yeah. our other approach. So the, the the approach that we're taking, which is somewhat tried and true and trusted, uh, is to go through federal funding. So mm-hmm. it's a slower process. There are grant reviews, what have you. Uh, we just received a large uh, NIH uh, grant for our research yes. lab to understand some of the mechanisms behind this uh, as well. Right. Um, and we're interested in some translational funding as well. So
3: this is also exciting. And it just what you're doing sounds very promising. Um, you know, getting the funding behind what you're doing is a big part of the step. So congratulations on on that part of it, and <laughs> <laughs> my fingers are crossed for Blair, so that she can go into the clinic yeah. and say, "Give me that."
2: Hydrogen. Well, I just, <laughs> I know I'm gonna need root canals eventually. I really want the gel. I want that. Is that is it is it possible in my lifetime? It is right.
0: That that's, that's my hope. I mean, okay. yeah, my, my hope is within the next five to seven years that we can I hopefully see. have something. But but to be fair, like yeah. uh, this is the dream, right? The dream of every biomedical engineer, in my opinion. Is to make something that touches a human, and then to see that flourish, right, Um, would be really cool.
1: Uh, And this is this is sort of uh, on that note. When did you realize you had something like that? Like what part? Like where were you in your career where you were like, this is the thing I'm going to uh, to to chase down, and and got to a point where you're like, I think it will also work. (laughs)
0: ask me that five years from now (laughs) (laughs) because you know i i I tell uh i I tell the students i mentor you know uh, genius i don't believe in genius i don't believe in intel i believe in hard work i think um end of the day like if and when this makes it to human trials it will make sense because everything that has led up to that Had to have happened, right? Like, we had to have done small animal rodent work. We had to have done in vitro studies, published that, small animal rodent work, published that, canine work, published that. And tomorrow, we're going to have to raise some, we're going to have to raise a lot of funds. We're going to have, you know, these press releases, what have you. All of this will fall in place, and then we'll do human trials. And at that point, I would say, yeah, it kind of makes sense. We have to do all of this. So I don't know that this is sliced bread. I think it is. And I think. You know, when folks were working on mRNA therapeutics, uh, yeah. when folks were working on mm-hmm. whatever else, right? Like uh, lipid nanoparticles or, or what have you. Yeah, and, uh, and, and then
1: highest, the highest and best use of it, where it becomes the, the most impactful and saves the most lives, you haven't even thought of yet, right? Yeah. Like it, Maybe. That so- somebody else is going to come along and go, I've got an application for this that's going to ex- we, expand we, human we, living for another five decades. We, we somebody else will come a- along.
0: We might need a COVID that has helped take many companies from where they were to much greater heights, yeah. Yeah. Uh, depending on the need. So, mm-hmm. but that being said, I think Johnson and Johnson recently announced that they are interested in peripheral artery disease, which was one of our initial indications. Uh, we've we've made a lot of uh, head headway with dental device companies. A lot of dental companies are device companies, which are much which have a different reimbursement scheme, different clinical right. trial plan. Um, but we, we've made some inroads there and in trying to get them more interested in a drug and things like that. So, yeah.
3: Is there anything else that uh, you want to let our audience know about that you're working so, on or? Yeah.
0: So I think, so So these are examples, right? These are examples yeah. of cool things that we could potentially do. But what right. I am most excited about is what my some of my students in the lab are doing today, which is, Taking, uh, taking structures, taking protein structures and designing new drugs to target them, right? Um, so, because, okay, so let me take a step back. So we, we have a whole bunch of ga- gamers who love playing you know, your Warcraft and all these different games. And because of that, the market, because of the gaming market, we had so much better graphical processing unit power, GPUs, graphics cards, right? Yeah, and turns out to run a lot of these computer simulations to dock proteins or peptides or receptors and all that stuff, it, it those simulations run so much better on GPUs than CPUs, right? So forget these, uh, forget these, you know, large computer clusters, big data clusters, or whatever that have a bunch of CPU power. We we bought these awesome gaming graphics cards and we run process, we run our simulations on that, and we use super, uh, you know, supercomputers and clusters where we run, um, you know, our comput- computational simulations. Anyway. So, wait, so I, what can I, mean, de- I can
1: get something like Foldit on an Xbox?
0: and So Alpha <laughs> Fold, right, Alpha Fold 2, Foldit, yeah. all these docking softwares. So yeah. we, we take known structures, we uh, truncate them or we modify them, we mutate them all in silico on computers, right? And then we synthesize them in the lab and hmm. our forte is self-assembling peptides. So we attach another domain to it. But... Essentially, long story short, the PhD students that I've just hired now, my hope for them is to come up with an idea and develop a drug all the way to hopefully small or large animal trials within a well, PhD, which I think is pretty awesome, you know?
3: That, wh- that wasn't awesome. possible historically. Like it, like now because of the- Five years ago, it, it
0: wasn't possible. No,
3: this <laughs> is amazing. Five years ago, wasn't possible.
0: Five years ago, it wasn't wow. possible. For the masses, 10 years ago, it wasn't possible at all, right? Yeah. Like five years ago, it, it, you know, you'd, you'd have to be at the right place, know everything. Mm-hmm. You know. But nowadays, I have yeah. high school students who, are, who have come to me with ideas on how to treat SARS-CoV-2, right? Because they ran code and not bad ideas, you know, um, and that's so get you- peer-reviewed.
3: Yeah. What are the skills now? So the PhDs that you've hired, I mean, this is, you know, bioengineering. So if you're going into, you know, you've got engineering, you've got a biology background, medical background. I mean, and now computer science also So
0: biomedical engineering, when it started, started with a bunch of uh, mechanical engineers, uh, chemical engineers electrical engineers and physicians who were trying to figure out how to solve problems, right? Mm-hmm. And because of that, if you look at a lot of different BME departments around the country, around the world, they have different focuses foci, focuses foci. on specific <laughs> aspects, right? Like biomaterials, bio-instrumentation, biomechanics. That's what we do. Uh, other folks might have more immunoengineering or rehabilitation or some other aspect. But for what we do, um, you know, yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's I'm, a uh, a little confused. Well, there's but, a,
1: there's a cardiologist that I met who started out as a mechanical engineer and and took a medical class on the side just to round out his education a little bit. Learned about the heart and was like, everything I learned about pumps applies right. to the
0: right. to
1: this. And switched careers and I was like does heart surgery stuff right. or whatever. But <laughs> but it was so applicable to, to the right. human machine that he just uh, went in that direction.
0: And and I think the point was basically biomedical engineering in general is highly interdisciplinary. And Mm. as we go forward, I think there's this huge uh, focus on data science and how we can use big data to solve problems, right? Because if you, I was just thinking about this today. Uh, Like if you can get, if you can optimize shipping for Amazon, if you can optimize one small process to save 10 cents per package, one cent per package, that's a huge deal. Right. And that's a data science problem, right? Which is why those people get paid so much nowadays.
3: And But if you can apply those kinds of things to human health.
0: Exactly, exactly. I think bigger. those are big changes that, that, that we should, uh, that I would encourage the next generation to look at. Um, yeah.
3: So thank you much for joining us and telling us about oh, your you. work. This is just... <laughs> Just fascinating stuff that you're working on. And yeah, good luck on bringing it to market because Thank I you. Said, that's it. The... <laughs> Thank you.
0: Can I, can I plug my, my lab? That's that what okay? I was
3: just going to ask you to yeah. do. Yes, please. It's,
0: it's my last So it's Kumar, K U M A R lab. NJIT. EDU. New Jersey Institute of Technology, Kumar lab. NJIT. EDU. Um, Fantastic. Just links to the other stuff I do there as well. So.
1: We'll be watching our audience will too that is uh an amazing array of, uh, p- of potentials and possibilities let's uh let's get the let's get the funding let's get this trial started come on people <laughs>
0: to work gotta work hard at it now that's all uh, that's that's yeah
3: <laughs> yes let's yeah keep working hard everybody and yes, we will have the links to all of these things on our website after uh we've posted the show and again, thank you so much, Dr. Kumar. It's been great. Great thank speaking you. with you.
0: Thank you for the opportunity.
3: You're welcome. All right, everybody, this is This Week in Science. Thank you so much for joining us once again for another episode of This Week in Science. If you are really enjoying the show, you know, you can support us because listener support is how we keep the show going. So head over to twist.org, click on our Patreon link and choose your level of support. Anyone donating at $10 or more per month, we will thank by name at the end of the show. I hope I get to read your name. We really can't do this without you. Thank you for your support. Okay, time to come back now with more This Week in Science. And it is time for that wonderful part of the show that we love. Blair's Animal Corner with Blair.
0: She loves our creatures, great and small. Biped, milliped, no pet at all. If you want to hear about animals, she's your girl
2: what you got Blair oh my goodness I have chemical camouflage did you know that exists <laughs> chemical camouflage I don't know if we've talked about it on the show before but not it's people. exactly what it sounds like right so Um, Instead of visual camouflage by blending into your environment or confusing a predator, this is chemical camouflage confusing a predator via smell. And so um, this is a study looking at artificial chemical camouflage to save endangered birds. This is specifically to protect them um, in Finland, from red foxes and raccoon dogs. Raccoon dogs are actually native to Asia, but uh, they are invasives in Finland, and um, they are exactly what they sound like. They are, they look like a mix between a raccoon and a dog, and they are a real thing. So Google it. Um, anyway, researchers recently tested two different methods for reducing nest predation from these uh, these predators. And uh, normally, if you had a predator that was predating a bunch of endangered species, you might hunt them, or capture them, or try to exclude them from a space where those animals are that they're eating. But in a case where they're everywhere, in the case of red foxes, they're actually native, but their apex predators are gone, so their population has exploded. They're not the top dog, but they are now, so there's way too many of them. They don't have population control. So between too many red foxes and this invasive raccoon dog, the native birds are really feeling the pressure from predators. And so uh, this this research wanted to look at two different ways to try to reduce predation without having to hunt or trap these individuals because it is such a widespread issue. It's just not... it, it's not viable at all as a solution, right? You
3: don't want to influence the populations negatively in the process of doing the research,
2: right? And right. it also just yeah. you couldn't you couldn't do it enough to actually make a dent on um, the impact to the seabirds. That's how pervasive these predators are. So, uh, what they did is they tested two different methods. As I said, the first was to spread waterfowl odor all over the wetlands. So this was chemical camouflage because suddenly everything smelled like birds. <laughs> so there's no way to sniff out where the predators are so it's really just confusing it's like where's the pizza (laughs) in the bathroom no that's not right no in the in the bedroom no it can't be in the bed it's got to be in the kitchen right no no it's not in the kitchen it was under the couch the whole time. You'd never know, though, because the whole house smelled like pizza, right? So that was one way to check it. And then um, the other one was using eggs containing an adver- aversive agent that causes nausea. So they were like, ah, go ahead and eat these eggs, but it'll give you a stomach ache, and then You're you won't want to eat bad. eggs ever oh. again. It'll be like that time that you had that one food, and then you... <laughs> Right, And you never want to have it again because you have like an aversion mm-hmm. to it now. Yep. So these are their two tests, And overall, both worked pretty well on the red foxes. Neither really worked on the raccoon dogs, the invasive oh, species. The chemical camouflage worked really well. It decreased the predation of artificial waterfowl by the red foxes. um, and it was really a significant amount. They also had control sites. To test kind of, they, the researchers would walk around, visit those sites, touch the nests, and then leave and not do anything. And uh, and so with all this kind of design, they they, saw, they said, chemical camouflage, we're pretty confident that helps with red foxes.
1: And well, that and means... It also reveals a little bit about the strategies of those predators. Right? Exactly.
2: So it yep. means that red foxes rely on their smell to find bird nests they think that maybe raccoon dogs just stumble across nests and eat them yeah so that's oops. why they're not like there's doing a it there's a nest i'm gonna way. eat it <laughs> yeah and so they had they had good results with red foxes with the eggs with the upset stomach ingredients <laughs> but uh but it wasn't quite as significant it wasn't large numbers like the like the chemical camouflage was so, the, the, essentially, way, this to, is. I
1: have to yeah. interject this for a second. I'm sorry. I just had to Google raccoon dog because I wasn't sure what we were talking about. I didn't know that existed.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that at the beginning of the story. So, yeah, um, yeah so they're from yeah. Asia. They're they're an invasive species in Finland. Yeah, and they just look like a mix between a raccoon That's and a dog. <laughs> a
1: crazy animal. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, but so the these methods could potentially help with vulnerable and endangered waterfowl species. But of course, this is one of those preliminary species where ultimately more research is required. So um, they, these were all done on artificial nests. So the next step is to go ahead and try these methods with real bird's nests to see what happens functionally in the wild. And from there, they might be able to make some good suggestions for managing these species. So but I brought it up because uh, chemical camouflage, I feel like I don't hear about that in conservation biology very often.
1: Right. Yeah. But, I've not, so, I've
2: but not, they, the these were fake, is, fake nests so...
3: though. Mm-hmm. How do they but, know that they got everything right for the nests? But great go, question, right? So there could be a
2: million variables into yeah. what makes a nest a nest and yeah. they could have missed something which made the chemical camouflage work because they were missing this little bit of genuine article that otherwise red foxes would recognize right so that's exactly why they have to move on to the next series yeah, in the study so, where they test it with real birds
1: so there's there's a thing that i'm thinking of I mean, the game theory of how how this all works which is you ever hear you, you know those little uh electric bug zappers that uh that you can i don't know where you would buy a thing like that but you get it you hang it up and then. the and it attracts the bugs and they, mm-hmm. z- 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 they get mm-hmm. electrocuted when they run into this little electrified thing that you hang up somewhere. But I've heard that if you really want to get rid of insects on, on at your house, give it to your neighbor across the street, down the street, because it actually attracts more insects to the general area than it uh, is electrifying. So, like... Is there potential here? Yes, this is where where I thought you were going. Yep, Doing the camouflage across an area. So now the predators who are there can't really find the localized uh, prey. So they're going to move on. Are they going to? No. Or is it attracting more predators from other areas because the camouflage makes everybody think that's the place to go. And Mm -hmm. then you just end up with more predators and then the numbers, uh, you know start to to track the other way. Great for those areas then that aren't being camouflaged because all the predators are like... There's so that's not, what you not... got to
2: do is you got to spray all of Finland. The whole country. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spray it all. Make the whole thing smell like bird. I mean, it's... Bird
1: it's, everywhere. Once you, once you start trying to play chess with nature, uh, you find it's a lot better than you think at the game. It's thinking...
3: It's mm. it's got uh, a few million billion years ahead yeah, of us. Yeah,
1: it's been working, on it. but but uh, yeah. I I wonder yeah. if I wonder if then you are you are better affecting the neighbor eventually better affecting the the neighboring uncamouflaged area, and if you are actually reducing your effect of the camouflage by increasing the number of predators attracted to an area. I guess it depends on how broad of a
3: more research is needed. Yeah. Yeah. But what yeah. if we were really loud about things instead of being (gasps) quiet, Blair.
2: I love this story. Tell me. This story is all about a researcher who said hmm, I wonder if my turtle makes noise. (laughs) The pet turtle Homer. It was time to put uh, a hydrophone and other microphones up to Homer to see if he had anything to say. This is evolutionary biologist Gabriel uh... H- Horjowicz Cohen, there's a J there. I'm not sure if it's a H or a J, but Gabriel, he had recently had this idea of recording species that we've previously considered mute while he was researching turtles in Brazil's Amazon rainforest. And so when he came home, it was time to listen to Homer. He started recur- recording other turtle species. In addition, he used a hydrophone or normal microphones. I almost said telephone. <laughs> that worked too i suppose and every species he recorded made sounds this study is through zurich university in switzerland and he found 50 species of turtles lungfish sicilians and the the subject of the animal quarter last week two ataras all made vocal sounds like clicks and chirps or tonal noises They might be very quiet, they might only happen a few times a day, but they were all making these noises. So first of all, first of all, step one of this study, all these animals are making sounds that we assumed couldn't make sounds. Of course, I was reminded, and I couldn't find the episode, but I swear in the first year or two I was on this show, I brought a story about giraffes making sounds, and I said, mark my words... (laughs) There are lots of animals making sounds that we assume don't make sounds. Right. So yep. I feel very vindicated. So <laughs> there are lots of animals. Making... We have a terrible sense of hearing and we're here like, I don't hear anything. Come on. <laughs> so lots of animals are making sounds. Now, the secondary part of this study is what is Bonkers. So, they combine their findings with data on evolutionary history of acoustic communication for 1,800 other species to do a type of analysis called ancestral state reconstruction. This calculates the probability of a shared link back through time. So, essentially, you can, through statistical analysis, you can find a common ancestor for a trait. So, you can, based on what animals have a trait now, kind of permutate backwards To find the common ancestor and to say this trait has been around for X million years on this planet. Mm -hmm. So previously, it was thought that tetrapods, four-limbed animals, and lungfish all had evolved their vocal communication separately. It was evolutionary convergence where they all kind of developed it at the same time. Probably there's a lot of expectation about going onto land and like sound traveling different, or I don't know. But anyway, so the expectation was that it happened over and over and over. This thing evolved over and over in the animal kingdom. First of all, that is not the easiest answer to this question. So if you're thinking about what's most likely to be the case, that seems very unlikely for this many animals. And in fact, in this analysis, they found that all vocal communication likely came from the same place. They found what they thought is a common ancestor of sound production for communication around 407 million years ago in the Paleozoic era. So there's, there's this really good idea. Now, again, this is all very new information, a newly extrapolated model, and so, of course, there's some critics out there. Right. And so yeah. one of the main critiques of this study is that they may not have done as good of a job as they could have of distinguishing between just making sounds and using sounds for communication. Uh, are they popping because they're burping? Are they popping because they're clearing their throat? Are they clicking because they're echolocating? <laughs> or are they using communication via sound and so you really need to drill down and figure out if that's actually what's happening so they want and
1: i think i Mm -hmm. I isn't that isn't that kind of a a low bar to have to cross because like even if you're not uh making a vocalization to tell your neighbor to to visit you or to to get further away from you if you make a distressy sound, mm-hmm. uh, your neighbor's going to hear that and recognize yeah. that that's yep. a distressy sound or a happy sound where you're eating. Like yeah. communication doesn't have to be nearly as intentionally, totally. you know, communicative as we think it is. It's just picking up cues from something else's vocalization yeah. or sound that they make. It's sufficient for a communication of some form to have taken place. So it seems like yeah. a low bar.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I'm on the side of the main researcher here on Hor- Gabriel Horwich Cohen, um, that most animal sounds in the animal kingdom, I feel like fit into, I'm going to say three categories. It's uh, help. I'm scared. <laughs> it's I want to make babies right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> or one. it's I'm here and this is my space. And most animal communications mean those things. So if that's what they mean, then then they're communicating something. To your point, Justin. So I totally agree with you. I think that it is a low bar. I think it's likely most animals make noise. And it's likely that most of it is trying to communicate something. Um, in fact, they tried to kind of whittle down and figure out if this was communication or not, by uh, comparing video and audio recordings of different species to find matches for behavior different individuals over time. They also put them in different groups to see if they had similar noises or different noises, depending on who was around them. And they really feel like it, it hit the criteria for communication. But they also acknowledge that some species are really hard to study because they don't vocalize very often and they're shy (laughs) and so much more study is needed but based on this preliminary look at these animals that are making sounds that we can record and the extrapolation in the evolutionary record it's been around for a long time
3: millions of years
1: within within this one group because i mean you imagine this is like you know vocalization of course it's got to be much older not, uh, but, this is in, of this is, but this is, in this is, like
3: this is
2: mm-hmm, like vertebrates. Mm-hmm. This is, like, this is vertebrates. This is vertebrates. Because if yeah. lungfish are included along with turtles, that mm-hmm. is, that's everything with a skeleton for
3: sure. For yeah. sure. And
2: does it go yeah. past that? Are there invertebrate sounds that we're not capturing that are similar that have a an, uh, common ancestor? And if you think about, if you just look at vertebrates and you think about, um, the hyoid structures and the inner ear and all these things that we that exist in the and the um the structures that we have had for all of evolutionary history that help us listen it would make sense that if hearing existed that there would be some sort of vocalization i
3: mean, well, I mean even, it, just, it, it, even just even just sensing vibrations right that's you what know I sensing mean, yeah, sensing exactly. vibrations you can get a sense it's sensory What's in my environment? What's happening in my environment? How am I going to respond to things? So,
1: because before an ear is even developed, right, there's a sensor that's paying attention to those vibrations.
3: Yeah, exactly. But it goes, yeah. But this is an interesting study showing these evolutionary links going way, way back. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, listen to your turtles, everyone.
3: They're trying (laughs) to tell you something. uh, yeah, you think, t- you think turtles are quiet. They're actually saying mm-hmm. a lot in there. Yeah. Judging you. <laughs> Judging you. <laughs> hey, Justin. Justin. Okay, so you've got stories. I know you missed a couple of stories at the f- top of the show, but uh, let's get to it. What do you want to talk about?
1: All right. Uh, so uh, one of the greatest potentials of genetic modification is combating diseases caused by abnormal, missing, or silenced the uh, genes one of the greatest obstacles of course is how to do it we can genetically modify mice we can knock out a gene introduce a gene but this engineering is not done in an already living mouse the changes are introduced to embryonic stem cells which then later become the mouse uh the genetically modified mouse and then uh so, anyway, that's outside. So, when we think about genetically modifying humans with genetic diseases, we don't really have a way of doing that. Once the cells are up and running, uh, it's, it's too big of a system to have an effect on. University College London researchers have found a workaround. This is published in Science Transitional Medicine. The researchers took on a rare condition known as CTLA 4 insufficiency. So, these folks carry muta- mutations in the gene that cause T cells to attack their own tissues and organs, including their own blood cells, even. The condition also compromises the immune system's memory. So, instead of getting a cold and building immunity to it, you can catch the same cold over and over and over and over and over again. It all comes down to a single gene. Actually, it's two of the same gene that produce an important protein. If one of the genes is faulty, if it's misspelled, call it, uh, there's not enough of the protein produced by the T-cells and the condition therein takes place. So they took human p- patient. this is sort of great uh, launching off of what, what Kumar, Dr. Kumar was talking about. They took human patient T-cells and they did uh, some cutting and pasting via CRISPR-Cas gene editing technique and researchers were able to basically rewrite the faulty portion of the gene, restoring the ability to produce uh, CTLA-4 pro- proteins back to the normal levels. So they didn't put these cells back into the human patients because that's a human trial and they're not there yet. It's a clinical trial. That comes much later. They did manage to, to try this out uh, on mice. CTLA-4 insufficiency was edited into mice and gene editing for of the mices uh, of, from the mouse t-cells from the mouse were were extracted modified and reintroduced so currently the the strategy for ctla for insufficiency is a bone marrow transplant to replace stem cells responsible for producing the t-cells but uh, this is very intensive uh Chemotherapy, grafting issues, rejection issues, many weeks can be spent in the hospital. By doing this version where they're taking out cells, manipulating them, editing them, and then sending them back into the body afterwards, you can go in, get an extraction, come back later, get an injection, and off you go.
3: This
2: is amazing. yeah,
1: Yeah. So the, this is this is one rare gene uh, insufficiency uh, syndrome, kind of a condition, or protein insufficiency due to to a single gene uh, that's that's missing or not working or miswritten. So the research uh, team says that this gene editing therapy may have actually a maybe a proof of principle for their approach that could be adapted to tackle other conditions. So when you have specific tissues. Specific tissues, or something like T cells, is a is a great example that can be adjusted, edited, and then reintroduced, as opposed to having to edit the entire human genome. Genome, right? Like, yeah,
3: yeah. You go into a specific cell type, and we know that this, like T cell therapy, is already uh, being used. So this isn't like entirely new. Like so, we're, so we're taking. The-
1: the versions of that I've seen in the C- T cell therapy though a lot of the times what they're doing is they're they're creating a T cell that goes back and just trains the other T cells.
3: Ah uh, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, so this is them correcting out. them.
1: Yeah, and this is actually editing those T cells mm-hmm. to be genetically to produce a protein themselves differently than they were doing and then reintroducing them. So it's it's truly genetic engineering of human cells. So far it's uh, only been uh, demonstrated to be efficient, uh, effective on mice. But again, as we were talking about, you do the you do your stingy, do you the do tests, your lab tests with the the taking the cells out and seeing if you can modify them. Then you, you do a the, the so
3: someday, study. someday. Hey, maybe, maybe. it's only in the five. Fight-
1: but that's for just one condition, right? So there's yeah. so many conditions that if if this if this works, they're also saying it's less time in the hospital less expensive actually to to do than the grafting therapies there may be a lot of diseases that find an easier cheaper and then more uh more accessible cure awesome some sort of technology and then at some point we'll just edit before you're born and you'll maybe maybe we'll not
3: yeah we'll get there
1: and do I you know, want to talk I, about yeah and then the, uh, the, I guess the last story I'll bring tonight is uh, another story from University College London. This week takes a look at ancient humans in Britain. And in fact, the oldest modern human DNA has been obtained from the British Isles. This is published in Nature Ecology and Evolution. New study that at least two, there were two distinct groups, distinct origins, distinct cultures that inhabited the Isles relatively the same time. 13,500 to 15,000 years ago. So they they looked at remains from an individual found in a cave in Somerset, which is in the south of England, and remains from an individual found in a cave in, cave in North Wales, which would also be in southern England, except it's in Wales. Researchers found that the DNA from the Somerset individual died about 15,000 years ago indicates that her ancestors were part of an initial migration into Northwest Europe around sixteen thousand years ago. The individual from the from it's, I guess Kendricks Cave in Wales is from thirteen thousand five hundred ancestry from a Western hunter-gatherer group whose ancestral origins are thought to be all the way uh, over into the Near East, which is sort of the Middle East, and then migrated to Britain around fourteen thousand. Years ago, the authors note that these migrations occurred after the last ice age when approximately two thirds of Britain was still covered with glaciers. It's uh, the climate warm, glaciers melted, drastic ecological and environmental changes take, took place, and humans began moving back into northern Europe. And They could also just walk to England. There's this Doggerland, this whole area between England and Denmark that was inhabited. Uh, because the North Sea wasn't there because of an Ice Age. And there's actually probably all sorts of wonderful uh, uh, marine archaeology that that still needs to take place there. So this is the Old Stone Age. As well as being genetically diverse, these two groups, they found that they were culturally distinct. Chemical analysis of the bones showed that the individuals from Wales ate a lot of marine and freshwater foods, including large marine mammals, while the humans at Somerset showed no evidence of eating marine or freshwater foods. They primarily ate land mammals, deer, wild cattle, horses. So two different uh, human cultures, two very different uh, survival strategies. Researchers also discovered some cultural differences about the mortuary practices of the two groups animal bones found at the whale site were decorated art pieces. There were no animal bones found there that showed any evidence of being used for food, food prep, or rendering of animals. So they think this indicates the cave was a dedicated burial site. In contrast, hmm. the animal and human bones found in the Somerset cave showed significant human modification Including human skulls modified, modified into cups for drinking. Oh no! What? Which the researchers believe to be evidence of ritualistic cannibalism. Hmm. Very different. Very different uh, cultures.
3: Very so, different.
1: So this, these, <laughs> uh, these also like aren't the current, likely current British ancestors. I don't think these are like because there was. Large-scale migration around 4,500 years ago. Large population shift again under 400 years of Roman rule. Anglo-Saxon, Viking, Norman invasion changed things a lot. So there's little or no trace of these ancient people existing there now. There, you know, even though these two findings are 1,500 years apart, uh, they found other evidence that could that shows that they could have been as close as uh, 600 years and that means that there's a potential that these two groups inhabited at the same time and overlapped right. at some point right over those over those centuries there could be some overlap there <laughs> although within these groups they are very distinct and they showed no overlap apparently the the conditions are terrible uh in england for for this archaeology they don't have very many fossils to 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 look at from this time because it's so, too yeah, wet over there
2: very yeah. very, very yeah. damp very both decomposed of are,
1: both of these finds Unless, are caves yeah you know caves are great places to to you know if you're gonna if you want to be if you want to be preserved go to a cave preserved. go <laughs> die in a cave that's how you do it
3: mm-hmm. a very dark not damp cave
1: I get it. If you're in the desert, yeah. you got to build a whole pyramid to make your own cave, whatever. Yeah. But if you, the place has got a lot of caves, just go in there when it's time to die. Or get
2: buried in go. a hermetically sealed coffin, as so many people yeah. do. So future archaeologists in like a couple thousand years are going to have a field day.
1: Too many. There's yeah. Too many. <laughs> a field day. All archaeologists have field days.
3: Yeah, that's true. <sighs> that's a funny. That's, yeah, exactly. Funny, funny, haha. ha. This is this week in science. I have a few stories to finish out our uh, our show this evening. We love viruses; it's our Twissween episode. So let's talk about um, uh, viruses that have been discovered in the melting Tibetan glaciers. Oh dear. Yeah, researchers have just uh, just published their study identifying an archive of dozens of unique 15,000-year-old viruses from the Gulia ice cap of the Tibetan Plateau. Um, the glaciers apparently, according to the researchers, formed gradually along with dust and gases. And so as a result, lots of viruses ended up in there as well. Um, and past studies have shown that microbial communities change with dust levels and ion concentrations and all that kind of stuff. So they can also get some kind of information about the atmosphere 15,000 years ago when these glaciers were being formed from these viruses, which is very interesting. But on top of that, the researchers uh, are saying that these viruses probably thrived in very extreme environments. So these viruses have genes that somehow... um, Allowed them to infect cells in very cold environments. They uh, so these are like the archibacteria of the virus world. the The team did find that um, a lot of these viruses were you know, just completely unique. They don't exist anymore. They don't. We don't have any examples of them currently. Twenty eight of the thirty three viruses they'd identified had never been seen before. And so, while there might be a a concern about ancient viruses returning to the Earth, it's more that uh, researchers are potentially going to gain insight from studying these viruses, learning how they lived in these environments, and what the microbial communities were like during the ice ages, fifteen thousand years—the ice age fifteen thousand years ago—that resulted in the formation of these glaciers. So we can worry about the uh, you know, scary Halloween
1: side of it, but let's look on yeah. the positive side. So there's more viruses than there are anything else. Like we also have to just by the sheer numbers game, the 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 ones that we've run into that were that are pathogens, exceedingly rare. Yes. Exceedingly rare.
3: Yes. But let's talk about how uh pathogenic viruses can possibly go even worse.
1: Uh-oh.
3: Um, you know, we we talk about horizontal genetic transfer among bacteria all the time. We know that viruses interact with bacteria. We know that, uh, like last week, there was news of these Borg archaea bacteria that researchers have been looking at that have been taking on the genetic components of methane-eating bacteria to allow them to. Be the Borg, whatever. Uh, Assimilating, I get it. Assimilating, yes. Yes, Uh, well, I had a new paper in in Nature Microbiology. Researchers at the University of Glasgow were like, oh, you know, it's cold and flu season, and people often get double infected with respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and the flu at the same time. And that must be bad, but I wonder what happens. And so they decided to take a bunch of lung cells, put them in a Petri dish, and then uh, add RSV virus, uh, RSV and flu at the same time. And instead of just seeing these viruses separately infect the lung tissue, what they found is that the virus is uh, hybridized. They connected to each other. Good, good, good. Yes. And um what they found is that it was kind of like a palm tree, the RSV virus forming the trunk and influenza, the flu, forming the leafy part at the
1: top.
2: It's the worst tree I've ever heard of.
1: It's so actually that's it's it's done in agriculture all the time, and I can't remember. Uh, it's some kind of apple tree that they always start a different kind of tree at the base and then graft on the apple tree oh, yeah, to the
3: top. yeah, so, grafting, for sure. Yes, yeah, So you, you
1: look across Agland and you'll see these trees that have this sort of darker, uh, trunk and then there's a line where it's a, like a lighter trunk going up the rest of the way. And that's what they, that's a, just a grafting hybridization. Uh, the, you have better root system that way for the, the canopy above it, yeah.
3: So the question, uh, don't this happening we don't want this happening in viruses, but thing. you know, this is, you know, we're in a microbe world, right? So this yeah. kind of stuff has probably been happening for a very, very long time, but we haven't really, you know, been like, Oh, look, huh. And now this is obviously a, an experiment in a Petri dish. We don't a- actually know what's happening in human bodies, in human cells. And so, you know, now the next series of experiments are, you know, what, what is actually going on because Uh, respiratory syncytial virus infects different tissues than flu virus does, even though they both have some of the same effects that, um, you know, they end up in different places. And so uh, the concern is with the hybridizing that they may both be able to have a larger effect across the board in the throat, the lungs, the navel cavities, sinus, and that kind of stuff. So um yeah so more research to be done but yay viruses hybridizing scary palm trees yeah scary palm trees um and then uh tentacles Blair. i know you love interesting weird robots (laughs) yeah 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 so researchers at harvard school of engineering and applied sciences decided that hey tentacles let's make robots with tentacles instead of uh robots with hands and so they took inspiration from say like curly hair and they were like oh, hey yeah and that really like as i was trying to comb my hair earlier today and there were bits of schmutz stuck in my curls i was you're like you're supposed to comb <laughs> curly hair kiki I know, I know. But sometimes, you know, you start getting the big tangles and you got to do something about it. But yes, these researchers um, have decided to take biological inspiration from the tentacle world and uh, enable robots to be able to grasp very uh, delicate objects. And so they now have a, a tentacle robotic gripper but the thing is it doesn't it's like it doesn't look like those gripper the 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 weird hands that go down and grab toys it's like a scary spaghetti
1: noodle oh,
3: so i gripper. just watched the video
1: of it oh that's very strange so yes. it's
2: like scary weird... spaghetti noodle is the best descriptor a, for
3: sure yeah they're so they're pneumatic rubber tentacles filaments yeah. uh they're it's like really spaghetti awesome. noodles that then twist up like curly hair and
2: grab really stuff awesome. if only i could pneumatically straighten out my hair
1: so, so so yeah so what it looks like is it looks like it, this uh this robotic arm here i will try to describe what we're seeing, uh with a bunch of hanging wet spaghetti noodles Yep. Is moves over an object to grab. And you think right away, no way. This is like worse than the claw hand in the, the thing where you try to get the little stuffed animal out of yep. the... It's even worse. It's just hanging loose noodly things. That's not going to do anything. And then they actuate and they all stiffen and roll up. They like stiffen up and, and they mm-hmm. curl up and they just absolutely grab this thing and a whole bunch of... The and they're really thing. good at
3: grabbing stuff, and it's really kind Brabs, of freaky I mean, looking. The,
1: yep. yeah, the really impressive am. part is the fact yep. that when it releases, they all go back to unentangled. I wonder if they, how yeah, many times it took
2: the them to get that.
3: They're
2: yeah. not tangling up that, together.
3: Yeah, they don't
2: have they, any uh, split uh, ends.
1: I don't know. Maybe that, or maybe they took that that video like that was like the thirtieth take. Because I feel like <laughs> I feel like that would that would work once, and then it would just be in, uh, too tangly. But obviously, if uh, it's working, it's working. That was it's, very. I cool.
2: want to I want to share Kiki. You the article that you included uh, has an up close picture of the little tentacles. Yeah, let me open and it, it's, open that up. yeah. So it's. It's, it really looks kind of like when you take Play-Doh in between your two hands and roll your hands together to make like oh. a noodle, kind of, or a, a log of some sort. Mm-hmm. But it looks, yeah, it looks like wet and sticky and squishy mm-hmm. in a way that from far away, it really didn't look like that. It looked like wet spaghetti. But when you look at it like this, it kind of makes more sense that it reacts the way that it does. But it still is
1: wild looking. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, is it just that it's just pneumatic tubes though? Is that really just pneumatic pneum- tubes? It's pneumatic that tubes that have that the, are, that tangle up different and thicknesses cur- at different they, points. And so they when they curl
2: up. Yeah.
1: Engage. Yeah, it, is they, it
2: differences in thicknesses or is it differences in um f- filament organization?
1: Like it kind of looks know. like just with the picture you showed, it's not they're not very uniform looking tubes. They're hollow rubber rubber tubes. Yeah, yeah,
3: one side of the tube has thicker rubber than the other. There you go. So that, yeah. that enables and the
1: it's that's a very simple design curtain. in a lot of ways, but it looked yeah. really effective.
3: Yeah. Creepy wow. tentacle robots coming very soon cool. to a warehouse near you. I love it. <laughs> and then uh my final story as we end the show is um just kind of an interesting one when you think about um you know, as we come up to Halloween and people start putting on their costumes and pretending to be different characters, uh, researchers at University College London, there's a bunch of studies out from them this week, oh, Justin, um, they published in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience and did a very limited study without control groups of a small number of actors um, but used wearable brain imaging technologies while they were acting as characters to see how their brains responded to them being addressed by their real self and not the character that they were playing. And so during the performances, the actors heard their own name and they found that an area of the brain called the left anterior prefrontal cortex was suppressed. And this is part of the brain that we think is related to self-awareness. And so the question is, like, what's happening here is, is this a, as you play a role, have you trained your brain to just like, oh, don't ignore that. Ignore that. We're not going to do that. Right. Um, Researchers are very interested in how uh, the potential Theater training could also influence individual uh, autistic individuals who have social deficiencies and int- have issues with particular social dynamics um, and how self-awareness actually works in the brain. So they're looking at theater and the, you know, taking on a new persona, which is You can learn many methods to do that in theater um, as a possible new way to understand social dynamics and how people work together and how the brain allows it.
1: Very interesting, yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, and they also found in pairs of actors who were doing a scene together, they found that uh, they had similar activity in the right inferior frontal gyrus and the right frontal polar cortex. And those are areas of the brain involved in social interaction and action planning. They didn't see anything involved in like heartbeat or breathing data, but specifically the brains of these actors were suppressing self-awareness while at the same time increasing this social planning and activity which again very interesting go play your parts it's especially interesting
2: it's especially interesting because in a lot of cases i feel like in most cases actors have learned lines right and so if you just learned your lines and you are just repeating your lines back it doesn't really matter what you respond to or what you call people. Because if you're just doing your lines back and forth, that shouldn't take that part of your brain at all. So this is like an interesting piece of that where it's not just that they learned their lines, it's that they have internalized that they are this other character with a different name.
1: You you hear about it a lot from uh, method actors.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. method actors. That
1: they, uh, once they've immersed into a role that they're, they're playing... They have a really hard time turning it off. Like they kind yeah. of stay in that mode the entire time that they might be on the set of a movie. They might be at home.
2: They only uh, want to be called that name. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, there's a lot of examples of this, anyway. Um, but uh, it 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 makes me wonder then if there isn't also you know for ps uh, post traumatic stress disorders, right? Is there some things,
3: application?
1: Could yeah. you get better living through method acting? Could they? Because there's a, 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 a if you can separate your own self awareness of of what you're experiencing right. by playing, ah, it'd be very interesting to see theater and science come together to to try to.
3: There to, you go, right. super fun, right? Yeah,
1: support the arts do need to support, be. See, arts do need to be part the of arts. the STEM. It does yes, that, so that, so that for STEM the rest of
2: today, I only thing. want you to call me. Oscar.
1: All right, Oscar. All
2: right, Grouchy.
3: Whatever. Have we come to the end of the show? Did we do it? Yes. Oh, we did it. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of This Week in Science. It's just been wonderful to spend this time with you, to have you spend this time with us, and I want to thank once again Dr. Vivek Kumar for joining us and uh, for the great interview, wonderful conversation about his work and biomedical engineering learn a lot from he was very well spoken really enjoyed speaking with him that was great um anyway time for shout outs thank you to fada thank you so much for help with show notes and show descriptions and social media thank you to identity for for recording the show every week thank you so much to Gord and Aaron, Lor and others who help keep our chat room a happy Happy, shiny place to exist. And also, Rachel, thank you so much for editing our program. And to our Patreon sponsors, Thank you to Teresa Smith, James Schaefer, Richard Badge, Kent Northcote, Rick Gloveman, Pierre Varel Ralphie Figueroa, John Ratnaswamy, Carl Kornfeld, Karen Tazzi, Woody MS, Chris Wozniak, Dave Bunn, Vegard Chef Stad, Hal Snyder, Donathan Stiles, a.k.a. Don Stylo, John Lee, Ali Coffin, Gaurav Sharma, Ragan, Derek Schmidt, Don Mundus, Stephen Albaran, Daryl Myshack, Stu Pollock, Andrew Swanson, Fred S104, Sky Luke, Paul Ronovich, Kevin Reardon, Noodles, Jack, Brian Carrington, Matt uh, E Youngblood, Matt Bass, Vote Beto for Texas, John McKee, Greg Riley, Mark and Steve Leesman, a.k.a. Zima, Ken Hayes, Howard Tan, Christopher Rappin, Dana Pearson, Richard, Brendan Minish, Johnny Gridley, Remy Day, Flying Out, Christopher Dreyer, Greg Briggs, John Atwood, Rudy Garcia, Dave Wilkinson, Rodney Lewis, Paul, Rick Ramos, Philip Shane, Kurt Larson, Sue Doster, Joe Nolds, Dave Neighbor, Eric Knapp, E. Oak, Adam Mishkan, Kevin Parachan, Aaron Luthen, Steve DeBell, Bob Calder, Marjorie, Paul Disney, David Simmerly, Patrick Beccararo, Tony Steele, and Jason Roberts. Thank you all for your support this week in science. And if you're interested in helping to support this week in science, head over to twist.org and click on our Patreon link on next week's show.
1: We will be back Wednesday, 8 p.m. Pacific time broadcasting live from our YouTube and Facebook channels, as well as twist.org slash live.
2: Hey, do you want to listen to us as a podcast, perhaps while you carve your pumpkin or walk around trick-or-treating? Just search for This Week in Science wherever podcasts are found. If you enjoyed the show, get your friends to subscribe as well.
1: For more information on anything you've heard here today, show notes, links to stories, will be available on our website, www.twist.org, where you can also sign up for the newsletter.
2: You can also contact us directly, email Kirsten at at thisweekinscience.com. Justin at twistminion at gmail.com or me, Blair, at blairbaz at twist.org. Just be sure to put twist, T W I S, in the subject line or your email will be spam filtered into a full size candy bar, but that does mean it will be given away to a trick or treater and we'll never read it.
1: You can uh, also, though, if you do want us to read something, hit us up on the Twitter where we are at twist science, at Dr. Kiki, at Jackson Fly, and at Blair's Menagerie. We love your feedback. If there's a topic you would like us to cover or address, a suggestion for an interview, please let us know.
2: We'll be back here next week, and we hope you'll join us again for more great science news.
1: And if you've learned anything from the show, remember...
3: It's all in your head.
0: (laughs) This Week in Science This Week in Science this week in science. This week in science is the end of the world. So I'm setting up a shop. Got my banner unfurled. It says the scientist is in. I'm gonna sell my advice. Show them how to stop the robots with a simple device. I'll reverse global warming with a wave of my hand. And all it'll cost you is a couple of grand Cause this week's science is coming your way. So everybody listen to what I say. I use the scientific method for all that it's worth. And I'll broadcast my opinion all over the earth. Cause it's this week in science. This week in science. This week in science. 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 This This week in science. This week in science. This week in science. This week in science. This week in science, this week in science, this week in science, this week in science.